Hey everybody, welcome to the first episode of Plot Spackle. First ever. I'm Richard, I'm the short guy at six feet tall. I'm John, I'm the one with the beard. And I'm Eric. I didn't actually think of one of these, uh, this intro to give myself, but, you know, I guess we're recording it where I live. Alright, there we go. That's where we are. And so, this is our podcast, Plot Spackle, and where it comes from is this thought that I had actually a while ago. It's something that's been brewing for a few years. And in the current internet world, there's a lot of plot hole searching. Lots of people look for holes in movies, small imperfections, and they talk about it. And this started to really bother me because sometimes it was a stretch or it was something that if they had been paying attention, they would have known why this was that way. And a lot of it seemed mostly just kind of this smarmy attitude thing that bothered me. And I like watching movies I also like making up stories. And so I had this idea of taking these supposed plot holes and trying to come up with a story that covers why this isn't actually a plot hole to expand upon the movie, to create a wider world where you should look at it and say, what am I missing? And fill it in yourself. And so I talked to some of my friends and they liked the idea. And eventually one of them decided, hey, we should actually do this and started getting recording equipment. So that's where we are now. And so that's what we're doing. I hope you enjoy it. Today on Plot Spackle, we are going to be covering everyone's favorite Christmas film, Die, Die Hard. Hard. All right. We didn't practice that at all. I promise nobody ever covered Christmas with the Cranks. I never sit home alone. Okay. So with Die Hard, Die Hard was, of course, a summer blockbuster released on July 20th. 1988, was nominated for four Oscars, and uh, has everybody's favorite villain, Alan Rickman's first film debut, where he actually ended up getting typecast from then on out as a villain. Gave him a lot of problems for that. We're going to give you a major spoiler warning right now, because we are about to give you a a plot rundown, because somebody out there maybe hasn't seen Die Hard. To be fair, you had 30 years to watch this movie. What's keeping you now from watching the greatest Christmas movie that's ever been made? All right, John. All right, so we covered the spoilers, so you've been warned. Die Hard is about a hard-bitten New York cop called John McClane, who has crossed the country to Los Angeles to try and fix things up with his estranged wife, Holly, at the company she works at, Nakatomi's Christmas party. Unfortunately, the festivities are interrupted when a group of international terrorists, led by Hans Gruber, take over the Nakatomi Plaza building, and only one who can save the day is John McClane. Will he be able to do it? One man against a twelve? If 80s action movies have taught me anything, yes. And what secrets will we find out? Spoiler alert, they're not really terrorists. They're thieves. Exceptional thieves, but thieves nonetheless. And they're going to steal all of the money in this company's bank vault before convi- before using a massive amount of explosives and a terrorist situation to pretend to be dead while they get away with all of this money. And so that's where we're at. And we can go with our major plot holes. Eric! 
All right, the first major plot hole is the terrorist's entire plan is to get the FBI to treat their takeover of the Nakatomi building as a hostage crisis and then cut the power so they, the terrorists, can thus open the vault to steal its contents. Since the terrorists are shown to have detailed knowledge of the building and access to explosives, it is never made clear why they simply don't cut the power themselves to the building or the entire area and then proceed with the robbery. So my quick answer here is simply because you can't think about them as thieves. You have to think about them as if they were terrorists because their whole plan is as if they were terrorists. And there's no reason for the terrorists who want to have a hostage situation to cut the power. They don't gain any benefit from it. So if they cut the power, it would look weird. Like there was a reason the FBI on their playbook cut the power to try and sweat them out. Exactly. That's one of the biggest things for why they want the uh, why they want it to all go on. One of the other big reasons is the way time locks work in safes. That's one of the big reason why they need the power cut is to deal with time locks on the last stage. And Theo makes a big deal about it. And it's because if you can get the time lock to go off, if any one of the time locks in there, electronic time locks being new at the time, resets in the brief time between the backup generators kicking in and the power being cut, the safe will allow itself to be opened. However, if any of them disagree, then it will still trigger an alarm that will go to the safe company, not to the police not to anybody in the building, but to an outside source. So by allowing the FBI to be the ones to cut it, they make sure that when the alarm company gets this notification, they're going to find out that there is a terrorist situation happening and that they are not the ones that need to respond to this. Uh, Really quick, we should probably mention what is actually being kept in the safe and why is it so important for these time locks? It is... A lot of things are in the safe, actually. A lot of treasures from the uh, CEO of the company, Misty Akagi, has, I guess, heirlooms or things that are important to him, along with the big important thing, a lot of money in unmarked bearer bonds. All right, so what are bearer bonds? So, good news, guys. I actually studied this in school. Bearer bonds are a form of wealth management. Basically, you give your money to a company or a bank and they will give you a little sheet of paper that you can bring back later and get that same amount of money back plus interest. But what's special about unmarked bearer bonds is the fact that normally those bonds are attributed to you. Unmarked bearer bonds, who, who is actually physically holding the bonds in their hands, can cash the can cash that in and get the same amount of money. Which actually is kind of funny. Those became illegal in the United States uh, due to the Tax, Equity, and Fiscal Responsibilities Act of 1982. So, one little thing that that will tell us is all those bearer bonds were not issued in the United States. Those bearer bonds were issued probably from the parent corporation in Japan. Okay. All right. And there was how much money exactly? So in Die Hard, there was $64 million worth in bearer bonds. And I did the math, or a computer did the math. If you were to take that money and 
get that same amount today due to inflation, those bearer bonds are worth $1,295,900,000. So that's kind of a lot of money to be keeping just in a vault, right? Yeah, just, just in a vault. That is a lot of money, period. And I can see why they get go to this extreme length to get in, get the money, and then pretend like they're dead afterwards using explosions and stuff. Like, they have this pretty good plan. Now, we've covered what's in the vault. Should we move to our next plot hole? So, the next one that people bring up is that Theo, the computer hacker, safe burglar in the group, states that drilling the safe has caused the electromagnetic lock to drop like an anvil. And they continue with, since an electromagnet is simply a magnet which activates when electrical current is applied to it, why wouldn't interrupting the electrical power to the vault prevent this from occurring? By cutting the power, the group could have drilled the safe and then stolen its contents when they got through with drilling. This all could have been done with the party going on upstairs, and the only way anybody might have known is when the power abruptly went out. Now, I have a couple of problems with that one right there is while the basic knowledge on an electromagnet is true, it's a magnetic field that activates when you run power through it, but electromagnets, when used in safes, there are a couple of different kinds. Most of the time, it's an electromagnetic magnet that is pulling pieces of metal apart so that you can then open things. And so if you cut the power, it will lock. And what they're saying here is that Theo is actually talking about it. He's saying that he has actually interrupted it, which has caused this to happen. And so it's too late now. And so it is now too late for them to do anything with it. It would be a something where they would have to get the lock to open on its own, which is part of their plan. It's the time lock. Exactly. The time lock is what they have to use to open it at that point. Because they have tripped this sensor already. And once again, it comes down to they're trying to look like terrorists. So cutting the power is off the table. They don't want to cut the power because that would make them look and say, why are these people taking hostages and then cutting the power? I mean, they can't communicate well then and they can't get in it for the long haul negotiations. It puts them in a bad position. And it becomes harder to manage the bunch of hostages in the dark. So, it's not one that I really consider a major issue. Alright, let's move on to our next major plot hole. So, the terrorists didn't know that John McClane was going to be a problem until he killed one of their men and sent him down in the elevator with a mocking note attached to him. If his plan was to somehow protect his wife and the other people at the party, this seems to have been an illogical method of doing so. Had he simply killed the guy, stolen the detonators, and then hidden, he would have prevented the terrorists from carrying out key portions of their plan. As it was, he barely survives his encounter with them, and potentially jeopardizes the safety of the hostages as a result. And so this is one of those plot holes that come after the movie. See, when you're watching the movie, and you're going through it, you have about as much information as John McClane does right then. And your initial thought probably isn't, oh, don't let them know. You're there with him when he has that cathartic moment of, oh, I'm going to mock these guys. Because John McClane didn't know their plan. He didn't really have a plan. He had just gotten into a fight and just barely survived, was high on adrenaline. 
And if you watch it, he clearly just kind of reacts. He sees the Santa hat and says, okay, I got an idea. And he goes with it. And just to add to that, they already know he's there at that point because he had tried to radio for help on the roof, but they had access to the, the emergency channels. So just being stealthy wouldn't work. They knew he was there when he tried to call for help. That's why the guy was up there. Exactly. And then with the part about, you know, taking the detonators and hiding them, that's assuming that John McClane already knew what their plan was and was already able to know what they, he needed to do with the detonators rather than just he stole this stuff from a guy. So he can't act on information he doesn't have. If you want a plot hole, that would be it. Yeah, so when a, when a character in a movie makes a bad decision, they're just trying to write a good character, be a good person that you could relate to and see, oh, you would do this situation. When you have someone who makes a bad decision in a movie that doesn't make any sense at all, given the information they have or the kind of person they've shown themselves to be, that would be more of a plot hole. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's not a plot hole, guys. John McClane is an American hero. He's just an every every man. He's just a cop. So, moving from there, the next plot hole people bring up is that emergency stairs are never really covered by the terrorists in the film. And while it would have taken a couple of minutes to go down, it's never explained why John McClane doesn't just simply walk to the basement parking garage using those. Because Argyle, his chauffeur, is down there with the limo and a working car phone. But there would also be exits from the building, which would allow McClane to escape and allow SWAT or law enforcement officers to enter the building. And it talks about the com- the film kind of ignores that because it does show Argyle talking to his girlfriend on the phone in the basement while this is all going on. But one point that that, that brings up is he'd be able to exit. We clearly see the terrorists close all the exit points. He'd just be in the basement. There's Maybe there's a door that would go to the outside that cars can't get through. But we can't assume that. I would, you know, it's a building that high value transactions are happening in that uh, building. I would assume that they're going to want to keep a log of everyone who can enter and leave. So why would you give a very obvious escape, uh, not escape route, but obvious hole in your security? And we don't know that they weren't covering it already. Because emergency stairs would be something that has surveillance along with most emergency exits that you encounter will sound alarms if opened. And they did have a guy who was at the security desk and had access to all that information. Now, outside forces weren't receiving information from the building, but that desk was still functional. And so I think that the man they put down in the uh, security in the lobby had a lot of information. It would just have been risky to just go down the security or go down the emergency staircase because you could have tripped one of those alarms or had been observed through the cameras and then the gig is up. And that's one of the reasons why John McClane sticks to the unfinished portions up top is because there's no cameras and there's no way to observe him up top. So yeah, I'm convinced. The guy at the um, in the lobby probably would have seen him and then could have radioed the other baddies. 
So the next uh, minor plot hole that comes up is although the film is set in 1988, cell phones were a thing. Why didn't uh, one of the party goers or even John McClane just call for help outside of that or using that cell phone? So the thing about those cell phones is they're not like cell phones we have now. Wait, are you telling me that you couldn't, in 1988, you couldn't carry a cell phone with you? You could. It's not something you'd have, like, stick in your pocket. Well, at a party, for instance. Okay, and so we're at this party. No one's going to have their cell phone on them, especially if you're looking at the kind of party deals. We have people doing cocaine, lots of heavy drinking. There's couples hooking up in boardrooms. Man, the 80s were great, right, guys? Yeah. <laughs> And so they don't have their cell phones on them if they had one. And sure, they could have left them in the offices, but that's a big building, and John McClane would have had to go past the floor that was taken over by the terrorists to get into the lower floors that maybe had cell phones, and there were none above that, because that was all the unfinished or being worked on spaces. It probably just slipped his mind, too. It's not the first thing you think of in that time period. Because remember, kids, not everyone had cell phones at the, in this day and age. They were a very mu very niche product. I don't. I can't remember how much they cost. They were probably like two thousand dollars equivalent. Equivalent. Uh, that was computers, but they were still expensive. Yeah, they were still expensive, and it wasn't a common thing. Like, girl, we grew up in mm -hmm. that time period. I didn't know about cell phones until I was in high school. Same. Same here. Yeah. And so that's not a thing you would have thought of. And maybe he had heard about them, but it's not in his line of thought as a New York cop. And if John McClane had thought of, maybe known about the cell phones, he would have thought about it because, remember in the movie, uh, as soon as, I think it's some gunfire, he says to himself, Argyle, please tell me you heard that and that you're calling the police right now. So he thought about the car phone. He knew about it. But I, I believe that the cell phones just slipped his mind. And even if they were, like I said, if he were to try and get some from one of the people at the party, he would have had to go to the floor where the party was, where all of the terrorists were, and gone through and made noise on that floor, which was basically suicidal. So, not really an option for him. So, not really a plot hole either. So people then go, why weren't there any other security guards or or even cleaning personnel in the building? I mean, even if it's Christmas Eve, somebody still has to be working and they would have had to be accounted for or dispatched by terrorists. And they were, actually. We know that there were two security guards on duty downstairs and they were dealt with rather quickly in a pretty effective attack. So, guys... How many people do you think were actually at the Nakatomi party? Um, do you remember what how many the FBI guys said? Was there like 50 or something? Around there. Yeah. So that's 20, two security guards for 25 people, or for 50 people, so 25 people each. That's fairly standard, if overkill even. Yeah, and considering that they had the ability to lock down the building if they needed to. They had an obvious security guard out front, and then there was a backup one by the elevator that could not be seen from the outside. So I think they were pretty secure. And as it goes for, like, cleaning personnel, 
it's Christmas Eve, and Mr. Akagi kind of seems like a nice guy. He's throwing a pretty lavish party. It doesn't seem like he treats any of his employees poorly. I think he gave them the night off. Or invited them to the party itself. Or if he absolutely had to, he probably said, well, the party is expected to end at 10 p.m. come then. But the building would have already been locked down at that point. So the cleaning people couldn't even have gotten in. Yeah, it's not really a thing. And this is before before super security conscious America was a thing. Two, two security guards down on the bottom floor, they've already checked everyone who's going in, in, like they did with John McClane at the beginning of the film. They were aware of all the people who were in the building, and they knew what was going on. They didn't need to have more than that at this point. Yeah, it's not like they need SWAT on hand for a Christmas party. That's not usually a thing. John, you're not going to the right Christmas parties. I apparently am not going to the right Christmas parties. So. so. All right, and our final minor plot hole is the fact that the Nakatomi Tower is 32 stories in height. That would mean there were hundreds of offices and cubicles throughout the building. Why doesn't John McClane just go hide in one of those and, you know, attempt to signal the cops from the from there? Never really explains that, right? And it would have taken the terrorists hours or days to search the entire building for him. So, here's where it comes into some interesting things. A, Die Hard is based on a book. Guess what, guys? Everything is. And in the book, this thing took, this did take a multiple days thing, and John McClane does hide out in offices, and they have to search the building for him. Guess what's really boring to watch in a movie? Also, that means that he has to go down onto the floors where there are functioning security cameras, which the terrorists have a guy posted down at the bottom watching. And just just to tie it back into an earlier point we made, John McClane has to get a radio signal out. He specifically goes to the top of the building to send out that radio signal. You can't really send the radio signal from the middle of a concrete building. I mean... Who here, even with our modern-day cell phones, you walk into a concrete building and you'll lose service. It's the same with radio. They all work off radio waves. The higher you are, the better chance you have of being heard. Yeah, and so he, he did the best he could. And the floors that weren't finished gave him great places to hide. He did pretty good, as it was. But like you know, Richard said, it just wouldn't have been a very good movie for the three or four days of hide-and-seek costly situation. At some point, you do have to just go in and realize movies are about fun. John, I would like to respectfully disagree with you. I think The Fugitive was an amazing movie, and that is basically a giant game of hide-and-seek. So you mean hide-and-seek done by Die Hard? Good, good point. Okay. There we go. And so I think we've, we're thinking about a lot of things to bring some of these connections together and we got this concept that there was probably an inside man there's someone who worked at nakatomi who was involved with the thieves and gave them like floor plans the information of about that there was that much money in the vault and someone who could have been used to get the bear bonds transferred into actual cash that they could use Exactly. So, we gave you the 
the amount, uh, the $64 million worth of bearer bonds, that is not a small number that you can hide in a, as a transaction in your accounting books. You definitely need to have someone who can fudge those numbers a little bit or move numbers around. So, and due to the nature of the bearer bonds, Hans Gruber has to go back to the Nakatomi Corporation to even cash those in. I mean, sure, he might be able to sell that to a third party, but he's going to have to lose a bit of the, the cut. And as soon as he, let's say he takes it back to the actual Nakatomi Corporation, says, I would like to collect $64 million worth of bearer bonds, please. Well, the corporation at the end of the movie, they're going to have to mark that all down because you can see that the vault was was broken into and it was it had exploded so they're probably just gonna write that off but if Hans Gruber comes back and says I have this exact same amount of money that was uh, was in the vault and disappeared in, in explosions and fire that is not what an exceptional thief does so for that reason we believe that there has to be someone at least in the accounting department dealing with those bonds who can help him can help facilitate the transfer of capital to Hans Gruber. Yeah, it doesn't have to be all at once. You could do it slowly over time. And if their plan had worked, they would have been assumed dead. I mean, Hans Gruber put a lot of work into this plan. He even went and joined a terrorist organizations to give that air of legitimacy. So when he goes in and starts saying, we want these demands, there's this trail and they say, oh, he's with this group. And so that's it, is someone who was in Akatomi, who was an insider, part of the plan, and they walked away scot-free. So if any of the screenwriters for the next Die Hard movie is, you know, give us a call, okay? We, we basically have written your next movie for you. Actually, no, we haven't written it yet. It's still, it's still in our brains. So come talk to us. Don't steal it. This has been copyrighted, probably. Trademark. Trademark. <laughs> inside man. All right. Sounds so, like a good band name, by the way. Die Hard on the Inside. Oh, dying we harder all on the inside. Dying harder on the inside. So, uh, any final thoughts about Die Hard? Any unaddressed plot holes that you guys that you guys think of? Just want to bring up some people are gonna. One of the plot holes that I read that how did uh, John McClane know that Hans Gruber was a bad guy? This actually comes from a deleted scene. All the bad guys have the exact same watch, and John McClane notices that. That's how he was able to tell that Hans Gruber was a baddie. But they don't actually address that in the film. But look at their watches. They're all the same. All right. That's an interesting note. I think uh, one one of the first ones I actually heard was why they were pretending to be terrorists when it's a bigger crime than being a thief. And I think that person had missed the whole concept of they were never planning on being caught. There weren't going to be any witnesses. From the very beginning, Hans Gruber was going to blow up the tower. That mm -hmm. was going to happen. That's why they had the C4. That's why the detonators. That's why they were so important. Is because thieves make poor martyrs. Thieves don't blow themselves up. Terrorists do. So if you pretend you want to pretend like you were dead. You pretend like you blew yourself up. People will believe that if you've established that you're you have ideologies that you're trying to project. But hey guys, let us know what you think. You know, did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? Is Die Hard the best Christmas movie ever? Or are you wrong? You're let wrong. Yeah, they're wrong. Well, send us a message at... 
or on our Facebook page at Plot Spackle. We're also on Twitter at Plot Spackle Podcast or at Plot Spackle Pod. And let us know what you think. Is there a movie that you want us to cover? Do you have a plot hole that we should cover in a movie that you really love, but no one else has really seen? Let us know, please. We need to talk to somebody. This has been a plot spackle. We fixed the supposed plot holes of Die Hard. I've been Eric. I'm Richard. And I'm John.